Okay, I think we're going to get started. Um, I'm really excited about today um, for a number of reasons, um, but one to be able to first introduce uh, Dr. Elizabeth Pitts, um, who will talk a little bit more about what we're going to um, be seeing today and, and who's going to be presenting and, and leading a discussion. Um, for those of you who don't know, uh, Dr. Elizabeth Pitts um, is actually a former IGERT student here at NC State. So for all of our Ag Biofuse students, um, she's an excellent example of um, where you can potentially sort of wind up after you spend your time with us here at, at NC State. Um, and it's been a real pleasure uh, for me being able to collaborate with her over the last couple of years, particularly on um, the arts work um, exhibit that we ran last year and is now um, amazingly um, due to the hard work of, of Elizabeth and Hannah Rogers um, and many others um, in a virtual component at the University of Pittsburgh. Um, so it's a really great pleasure for me to introduce Elizabeth who's gonna talk to you a little bit more about uh, what it is we're gonna be doing today. Thanks so much, Todd. And hi, everybody. It's a pleasure to almost sort of be with you. Um, this event is part of the second iteration of the Arts Work in the Age of Biotechnology exhibition, which, as you know, um, first took place as a physical installation at NC State and the North Carolina Museum of Art um, in the months leading up to the pandemic. <laughs> um, uh, Arts Work Part Two is now taking place online at University of Pittsburgh and everywhere the internet extends. Um, I'll, after I speak, I'll paste a couple of links in the chat. I hope you all will consider um, participating in additional programming. Um, and also just as a heads up, we have um, a couple of the other artists from the Arts Work exhibition with us today, and I, I'm looking forward to, I hope they'll consider participating in the Q&A afterwards. Um, my job here is to introduce first Rich Pell and then Mike Dietrich, um, and then we'll screen the film, um, and then Rich and Mike will speak and we'll open things up to Q&A. So to begin, um, many of you at NC State have met Rich Pell before, um, but you may are be less likely to have visited his Center for Postnatural History, which is here in Pittsburgh. Um, and this is an organization that is dedicated to the collection and exposition of life forms that humans have intentionally altered through genetic engineering and other means. And just to set the scene for you, this is a space in a neighborhood where, you know, you'll, you'll be walking by a coffee shop, a yoga studio, a gallery, um, going about your errands, perhaps your gallery hopping on a first Friday with a beverage in your hand. And you might go from a place that is featuring um, paintings and sculptures, and then you open the door to the Center for Postnatural History and are immediately encountered with, for example, a spider goat. Um, and this is a um, fantastic, weird, disarming um, place to be. And the Center for Postnatural History and work, Rich's work in general 
I think prompts conversations that are very much in the spirit of the genetic engineering and society program, um, as well as the new research ethics and society initiative we're launching here at Pitt. Um, and not only does Rich prompt these conversations in an inviting way that, um, that raises questions rather than providing definitive answers, but he also launches exhibitions that travel domestically and internationally. Um, he's a National Academy of Science Cavley Fellow. He was awarded the 2016 Pittsburgh Artist of the Year Award. And he's also in his spare time, an Associate Professor of Art at Carnegie Mellon, where he teaches courses, including one called Art at the End of the World, which seems especially apt right now. Um, Mike Dietrich, who will be responding to Rich's work, is a professor and chair of the Department of History and Philosophy of Biology here at Pitt. His areas of expertise include scientific controversies in 20th century genetics and evolutionary biology, and the histories of developmental biology and molecular evolution. Um, Mike has more publications and honors that I could possibly list here, but you might be especially interested in a forthcoming edited collection with Luis Campos, Diego Sarayva, and Chris Young that's entitled Nature Remade, Engineering Life, Envisioning Worlds. Of all of these honors and descriptions, the one that stuck with me the most came from a 2014 article in The Scientist called Drawn to Controversy about Mike. And it begins, by digging through dusty storerooms and reading dead people's mail, science historian and philosopher Michael Dietrich keeps biologists attuned to the past and mindful of the present. Um, and I know we all are very much looking forward to hearing what Mike will be attuned to and mindful of with respect to Rich's work. Um, I know that Rich wants to very briefly talk about the 3D aspect of the film before we show it. Um, so I will turn things over to him. Great, Elizabeth, thank you so much. Um, so yeah, uh, this is a, it's called a 3D anaglyph film. So these old red and blue kind of glasses um, the red one will go over your left eye. Um, if you don't have those, don't worry about it. Uh, the, the narration is really strong. You'll be able to, you won't have any trouble following the story. Um, and if you're curious, like, why is it 3D? Where does that come from? Um, if you've ever seen one of these, uh, this is a stereo viewer. And these kinds of photographs are kind of the 19th century version of virtual reality. And all of the imagery in it are sourced from those. So they are they are natively 3D. It's not something I added to the images. Um, and with that, I think I'll save everything else I have to say until after we've all watched it together. Underwater wasn't underwater before. 
The Entropic Deposit. The largest geologic data formation ever discovered. Over three million stone blocks of ancient information storage. And not a single piece of readable data has ever been recovered until now. Recent discoveries in artificial intelligence have produced the first complete translations of the entire deposit, shedding new light on the end anthropian geologic boundary. The newly translated texts date to the upper anthropian. They reveal a civilization that developed an entirely information-based economy that may have rivaled that of the 20th century. Incredibly, Entropians did so without any form of electricity. Instead, they processed all of their information using the labor of trained animals, functioning collectively as a large-scale computer. Honeybees, for instance, were renowned for their use in solving differential equations, while flocks of trained pigeons conduct hierarchical linear modeling. Even agricultural crops were employed in the service of computation. The whole process began with data managers in the Entropian Highlands. They communicated instructions through a language of chirps and whistles, passing along a vast network of vibrating threads. Once received by the processors, the instructions were relayed to the beasts of the Entropian calculating yards. A vast network of interlocking microhabitats, the Entropian calculating yards remain today the largest computational device ever created. The Entropian system of computation operated for ages with apparent perfection until a coding bug caused the entire Entropian computer to crash. A search to discover the source of the bug proceeded through all the beasts of the calculating yards. Eventually, every four-legged animal was debugged. The birds came next. Then the creatures of the sea. Followed by the crawling animals. Not even the trees were spared. Nor were the food crops. The source of the error was never discovered. 
By the end of the search, the land of Entropia was left barren. Isolated and without food. A plan was presented to optimize their own survival. The remaining Entropians divided themselves into two groups of equal size. Once a month, a large banquet was held, during which one half of the population would be fed to the other half. Communication logs indicate that repeated requests for emergency upgrades were sent to the library at Entropia. The library stored the most essential programs, carved into the hard stone blocks known today as the Entropic Deposit. A thorough analysis of the deposit indicates that these May Day messages were indeed received, and in response, the librarians of Entropia had prepared to transmit one of the oldest volumes in the library. The final words of the Entropians contained instructions for the construction of a ship of improbable size. One whose length must correspond to its width. The recipient was instructed to gather together all of the living creatures of Entropia onto the ship and to take refuge inside. It cannot be known if this message was ever received. So did you hear they found the recording? Electronically reporting Thanks so much. Thanks, everybody, for, for, for watching. Um, the, the, the Zoom is not friendly to the uh, anaglyph format. So, the, the, you know, um, if you ever care to revisit it on, on Vimeo or through the, uh, the arts work in the Age of Biotechnology website, um, you can see it in its full or higher resolution version. Um, so I just wanted to talk a little bit about the, the origins of it and kind of unpack um, a few dimensions of it before uh, uh, passing it over um, to Mike. Uh, so this project began um, this year. Uh, so, well, not this year, 2020. Uh, and 2020 began with me teaching, as, Liz as Elizabeth pointed out, a class called Art at the End of the World. Um, that was before the pandemic. And we were kind of doing a deep dive into um, uh, apocalyptic narratives, uh, it, kind of in, in, in the hopes to figure out maybe they can tell us something about what at the time seemed like our apocalyptic present. Um, again, pre-pandemic. Uh, so we were looking at like um, the, the oldest stories known, the oldest written stories, the Epic of Gilgamesh, for example, um, it has a, a very apocalyptic portion of it. Um, it's essentially a flood story. Uh, it anticipates or maybe is the predecessor to the Noah flood story of the Bible, but precedes it by a couple thousand years. It's about a 4,000 year old story. So as long as human beings have been writing down stories, we've been talking about the end of the world and like what to do about it. Um, and one of the interesting things about these myths is they're, they're loaded with contradiction. It's really hard to kind of 
parse out exactly kind of what the moral function of the story is. You can argue with them over in a bunch of different ways, but they're also kind of packed with like really practical specific information, like the dimensions of a ship. Um, and I thought that's interesting. Uh, and I was reminded of uh, the writer Idris Shah, um, who uh, wrote about a Sufi allegory. He kind of did a retelling of it called The Islanders. Uh, and it was sort of about this. It was about a people living on an island that have to leave for maybe a thousand years, maybe 10,000 years, many, many generations. They have to leave their home, but they still want to come back. And their plight is how to retain the knowledge of how to get home, uh, how to build the ships that are going to get them back home, even how to swim, because in their new home, those aren't, that's not going to be useful knowledge. So over thousands of years, how do you keep a big, complicated body of ideas functional, um, even though they lack utility? Um, and it, it doesn't go well for them, by the way, in the story, not to give any spoilers on the Islanders. Um, but in the midst of all of this is when COVID rolls in and the lockdown begins. Um, and the museum that Elizabeth mentioned, the Center for Post-Natural History shuts down. And for the first time in more than a decade, um, I, I don't, I, I'm, I'm not the director of a museum anymore. I don't have a museum anymore. Um, those ideas are sort of, they don't have a place to go. Um, and in a way that was kind of great. It was like a little, little vacation. I was able to think about other stuff for a while. Um, I wasn't maybe completely committed to, uh, the non-fictional form as I had been for a decade. Um, I was allowed to kind of dream and to escape, really wanted to escape. So I spent a lot of time in my studio escaping into old media, um, like these stereo view photographs. I had, a, I had a few hundred of them from exhibits here at the museum about agriculture and stuff like that. Uh, and I found like connecting to these people in these photographs from 100, sometimes 150 years ago, uh, sometimes the people would be looking directly into the camera. You could make eye contact with somebody across a century. It was like a form of time travel, of escape. Um, those people in those pictures, they had their own problems, but they didn't know about mine. You know, they didn't know about COVID-19. They didn't care. Uh, and so this was like a meditative way of, of escape. Um, and one of the things that I noticed that's maybe relevant to where we are here in this conversation um, is that the pictures happen to kind of capture um, a really interesting moment when kind of agriculture and industrialization were just starting to collide, um, when in agriculture was becoming industrialized. Uh, and whereas the pictures are presenting this as like the newest, latest, most exciting evolution, um, I was looking at it as maybe this is like the prehistory of synthetic biology. Um, the, the plants and animals in these pictures are essentially the same ones we use in the lab today, um, same species. Uh, and so I'm looking at it kind of backwards through the lens of synthetic biology, um, seeing these as ancestors to those ideas. Um, and what might that tell us? And every time I came up with some kind of weird idea, I just wrote it down on a post-it note and stuck it to the pictures. And eventually the pictures sort of piled up around my studio eventually filled like every open surface of the studio. It was like, it was like having, it was be, like being able to kind of return to the same dream again and again and again, and kind of play out the dream a little bit further each time. Um, and in that way, the story kind of stitched itself together over time um, until uh, Elizabeth and Hannah asked, what's going on with you? <laughs> and uh, I, um, 
suddenly had a reason to turn this actually into a film project that could be shown to people. Um, so that's all I want to say, just to give it a little bit of context for how it came to be. And there's a million other things I'd love to talk about. Um, but now maybe I will pass the uh, pass the mic on to Michael. All right. Thank you all very much. It was a great pleasure to be able to come here and be able to comment on this today. Um, so uh, I want to sort of just give you sort of my impression of how I the thoughts that this this little film uh, sort of inspired in me. Um, so since at least Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, jokes have been seen as one of the safest ways to say truths that are maybe too hard to say directly. Um, Codex Entropia was uh, the product of a very grim year, grim year of death, sickness, and isolation for all of us. Uh, and here we have this strange, whimsical little bit of science fiction. Um, and I want to propose that maybe this, uh, the whimsical nature of this film is, is necessary in order to make a tale of global catastrophe bearable, even if we only have to watch it for eight minutes or so. And I think um, as a nostalgic note from a possible future, Codex Entropia allows us to look obliquely at a present that may be too unpleasant to consider all at once. The idea of catastrophic change struck me almost immediately as the film begins with Jason Martin's song about being underwater, played over stereoscopic images, especially the image of the men sitting on toppled ancient columns. A similar image of ancient columns crumbling only at their midsection is in the frontispiece of Charles Lyell's famous Principles of Geology. Written in 1803, Lyell used an engraving of the Temple of Serapis, whose columns had been eroded just in the middle um, by the sea. They were once sort of at sea level and then they had risen to above sea level. And Lyell used this sort of image to represent his new uniformitarian geology. This was a geology of balance between forces of elevation and subsidence, everything balanced out um, in the long run. He was responding to catastrophist geologists. Those were geologists in the 19th century that used massive floods like Noah's or Gilgamesh's flood, they more partial to the Bible than Gilgamesh, um, and or huge volcanic eruptions, right, to explain the Earth's history. And instead, Lyell pushes us back to this sort of more modern, what is now modern uniformitarian mode of balance. So seeing the columns that were once underwater made me wonder if the Codex was some sort of new catastrophist text or whether there was actually a uniformitarian sense of balance lurking underneath. Unlike Lyell's time, the catastrophes of the Codex, though, are entirely human-made. Uh, first, we get an information system projected onto the natural world. Interestingly, all of nature does not become managed in this repository. Rather, what's managed are systems that we already recognize as systems of agriculture. They become means of com computation and information management. It's telling that this system of natural commodities is merged with an information system because in our current information environment, it's human data, our data, that is increasingly commodified. We are the information livestock that are being arranged, programmed, and harvested to maintain a profitable information economy. Second, management of the natural world as an information system provides the seeds for its catastrophic demise when a bug is worked out of the code by systematically dismantling all living creatures that made up the system. The willful destruction of nature in the name of IT stands in for processes of climate change, but aren't necessarily distinct from it. 
the whimsical natural computers here are standing in for sort of an industrial order in our contemporary world. Now in projecting this system onto nature, the technocrats of the codecs act like so many managers that are described in James Scott's book, Seeing Like a State, how certain schemes to improve the human condition have failed. If you haven't read this book, you need to read this book. This book begins with a history of the German system of forest management. Rows of trees neatly planted are easy to manage, harvest, and imagine until they're not. Scott reminds us that the fiscal forest, actual trees become replaced by abstract trees that are measured in terms of the volume of lumber that they produce. All of the other flora are gone. All of the other animals are gone. Every other human use of the forest is stripped away, yielding a utilitarian state vision. What he describes as the great simplification of the forest into a one commodity machine allows it to be very successful initially, and that success promotes German forestry as a model, indeed one that's a, a brought to the United States by Gifford Pinchot and becomes the basis of early 20th century forestry. But the monocrop, the German monocrop, is disrupted, uh, has disrupted the complex ecological systems of the forest, leading the Germans to coin a new world, a new word, Waldsterben, forest death. So as I read the codex, my vision is actually even more grim than the one underlying the sort of whimsical music and so on. Um, the way I read it, not only are human systems inexorably destroying the natural world, but they've done so before, and we seem to have learned almost nothing from it. This leads me back to whether the Codex is an account of catastrophe or not. In one sense, it certainly is. Yet, even though every living thing in, is killed, right, someone survived to make the Codex. We could read this as a sign of hope, or it could be just another stage in a perpetual cycle of creation and destruction from which we cannot escape. Um, that decision is sort of up for us to talk about. Thank you. That's great. So, um, Rich, I'll maybe I'll turn it back over to you to maybe provide some counter comments to, to what, what Mike was saying. But just to remind everyone, please feel free to add your comments or questions into the chat box. Or even better, use the raise hand function so we can call on you so you can ask your question, question live. Sorry, I had to unmute. Uh, Mike, thank you so much. Um, you've added uh, so much to my understanding of, of the story. Um, you know, the, the duality, the conversation between uniformitarianism and catastrophists um, was not on my mind when I made it, but it seems really obviously present. Um, <clears throat> and I took a lot of notes of books and references that you made that I'm gonna have to follow up on my, because I don't know them. Um, I uh, yeah, I would I would I would love to 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 take any questions from from anybody, or maybe if uh, Elizabeth has some questions, she can feed us. Yeah, so I can. I'll start reading some that are in the chat while people oh, uh, get over their shyness to ask their questions <laughs> live. Um, Molly just made a, a comment that I'll read out. Um, she says, "You know, I can imagine this work having happened absent COVID." perhaps here just on an accelerated production timeline. Um, and then Annette is asking, you know, I'm really interested in the way this film presents the world as a computer, which is a sci-fi premise, for example, three-body problem, an aspiration, and an approach to philosophy. I'd love to hear Mike and Rich say more about that. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, the world is a computer. Uh, I, I, as an artist, I kind of emerged out of uh, Carnegie Mellon, surrounded by computer scientists and engineers, um, and then went on to stumble into synthetic biology, where they were all using the same words, but they were talking about living things, um, you know, referring to a, a living cell as a device, and uh, talking about programming it using um, genetic engineering and DNA. Uh, so I was really kind of poised for that, that lens, um, but I'm kind of new to it as well. Like I, my background is not in science um, and I'm not a computer scientist. Uh, and, you know, when I look at um, the degree to which we are, are shaping and altering the world and rationalizing the world and reducing the world to kind of repeatable parts that are compatible with one another, you know, this is, these are principles of industrialization, but that in the computer computational world, we've taken to, you know, kind of a level of religion where it has to be everything in order to function properly has to be reduced to these discrete, repeatable, well understood, characterized elements. Um, and I, you know, I can say that concerns me <laughs> um, a lot uh, in the real world and carries with it, I think, so many of the same issues that are present um, in, in the industrialized world of machines, um, where the same problem that exists in one place is also now compatible uh, with many different places and is, is repeatable. Um, the same things that make uh, it useful to be able to create something that can work in many locations now also makes it uh, for a virus, for example, um, that is uh, adapted uh, to one kind of an organism to be uh, able to uh, propagate across a monoculture. Um, uh, I think COVID ended up being a window into some of those issues, whether or not the origins of COVID can be traced to industrialization. Um, it's certainly a window into uh, what we can expect more of coming from that kind of a world. And I'll just stop there. Um, I'll, I'll jump in on that. Um, so from my perspective as a historian of biology, when we look at sort of the distinguishing features of the 20th century, um, biology emerges from a long tradition of natural history work. Experimentation is this newfangled thing that's going to allow us to understand things in a much more reliable way. But also in the early 20th century, we get the rise of what's called this engineering ideal where the ideal isn't to understand the natural world, it's not even to understand the processes in the natural world, it's to intervene, control, and manipulate. And um, since this is a genetic engineering conference or you know, group in part, you know, the first piece of biotechnology is hybrid corn, um, derived you know, in the early 20th century. And that's sort of emblematic of that engineering ideal, right? And it, it's not this is not basic science. It's not even applied science. It's a, it's a kind of intervention where the goal is, is control. And so what I liked about the film is that we not only get that sort of um, intervention coded, you know, through livestock. Um, I like that, that way of doing it because you also get this dimension of commodification, right? Which is also part of the hybrid corn story. Uh, we deliberately chose not to make hybrid corn sustainable so that it could become the first mass commodity of seed companies in the United States, right? Deliberate choice made um, by the United States government. So I think the commodification part is, is absolutely central um, mm. to this. And it's something that we should be talking about more, even with the COVID, with all the other dimensions of this. It, it's sort of the inescapable part for me.
Um, I saw somebody in the uh, comments mentioned uh, the Antikythera mechanism, which is uh, big in the news right now, um, and something that I follow avidly. Uh, for, for those of you who don't know, this is a, an, an ancient Greek um, computational machine uh, discovered in the bottom of uh, the, uh, uh, the Mediterranean somewhere in the early 20th century, 1903, something like that. Um, and we just have parts and there's been a lot of discussion as to like what its function was, um, but there's a bunch of things that are agreed upon. It could predict uh, eclipses and the movements of planets and so forth. Um, the, the, I think the, the big takeaway about the Antikythera mechanism is that there's nothing like it for another 1500 years. Um, to me, it's, it's, it's a story about our, our capacity to forget um, the idea that that degree of complexity could have been achieved and then lost and not regained for such a long period of time, um, you know, speaks to the to the you know the geological function that is kind of referred to in Codex Entropia, you know, that information can be buried uh, in that way um, and is very very hard to recover. Uh, so I, I I think it's a it's it's an amazing um, kind of window into like a fantastical world of the past, but it's also this incredibly powerful like um, object lesson for us here in the present. And I see Fred Gould has his hand raised. Yeah, and just, I just wanna remind everyone if you're looking for the raise hand function, if you mm. hover towards the bottom of your screen and click on the reactions button, there will be a raise hand functionality there. Um, but now I'll turn it over to, to Fred. Yeah, it's just that um, I put something in the chat. Elizabeth said, would I be willing to talk more about what I had in mind? I was thinking that the contrast that you bring up also reminds me of the contrast between our current computing system, which could be that old <laughs> thing compared to quantum computing. And, you know, which I, I, I really can't wrap my brain around it too well. But, you know, remember, we're in this deterministic world. Quantum computing is not in a deterministic world. And just to think that, you know, 500 years from now, Rich, <laughs> you know, what we do today, what we're do, using to communicate right now will be like those cows. <laughs> Absolutely. I would explain to your great, great, great grandkids that everything had to be reduced to a one or a zero. <laughs> what? <laughs> So we have a question from, from Marty Wiggins. Um, and says, this evokes a lot of Anthropocene ideas for me. How do you see the role of humans in nature? Are we catalysts or cause agents for new life forms? Or do we have a role as gardeners or planetary managers? Oof. I mean, that's like um, aspirations versus realities. Uh, I would, I would love us to be gardeners and managers, although I can't say I'm a great example of such. Um, yeah, I mean, I, when I look at the living world, so the, the lens through which we look at it around the Center for Post-Natural History um, is that we look at living things that have been intentionally and heritably altered by people. And so we're looking at basically everything that people do to the living world as a kind of a cultural work uh, and we look at how that reflects their cultural values, you know, regardless of what they say their cultural values are, right? Um, so, you know, if we look at <clears throat> if we look at ours, you know, the most common animals in North America, probably industrialized chickens, perhaps. Um, 
you know, they're, they're highly uniform. They're bred to be completely the same size because we've made machines that, that need, they need to fit through. Um, you know, these are our values. And that's all in the service of an economy that wants to produce extremely cheap chicken nuggets. Um, we take that value above uh, sort of public health issues that go along with that um, or just about anything else. Um, so when I see our role, I think that's what I see our, our role is, not so much what I wish it were or what I think we need to get to. Um, and I guess those are, depends on whether you're looking at the present or you're looking towards the future. I don't know if Michael has anything, any thoughts on that. Well, I think this, this metaphor of gardeners, right, um, is, is uh, a little too beneficent for my dark, my dark vision of the present, right? So just this morning, they actually published that a lot of the new variants are coming out for COVID because of the slow vaccine time. Uh, or weak immunological responses that are sort of being uh, tolerated in nursing homes and hospitals, right? We are literally creating the conditions for these new viruses to mutate and evolve. Um, and so we're actually, we are fostering, you know, this pandemic. Are we gardeners of it? No, we're stupid, right? We're unaware that we are in fact promoting this kind of change, or we're oblivious and simply don't care because we'd rather be on the beach in Florida, mm. spreading the mm. virus mm. And, and enabling more variants and more evolution to occur. And we got a question from Zach. Zach, you should be able to, hold on. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Yeah, cool. <laughs> Um, hey, Rich, it was great to see the film um, and a uh, great conversation. I was wondering if, in, as you were dreaming through this, were there any members of this like huge planetary network of organisms that were um, not connected and were able to resist the virus? Um, we have two terms in our research that we're trying to figure out what they mean, um, air-gapped agriculture and food security through obscurity. So, you know, we're pulling on sort of the same computer science stuff, but so I guess, was there an air gap in your dreams or was it just fully everyone got infected and ate each other? It's interesting, there, there was an air gap. Um, I, I imagine this happening on islands um, and therefore they're isolated and therefore there's the, the, the probability that there are other places, um, but they are, you know, pretty isolated. But as Michael pointed out, the story gets out somehow um, that there is somebody, something that makes it through far enough to, to tell the end of the tale, um, which is a feature of basically every apocalyptic story, almost by definition. It's like uh, apocalyptic stories are ra rarely like a suicide note that uh, where nobody's left behind. Usually there's, there's a witness. Um, and in that, there's a kind of, you know, hope. It's dark. Um, but there, there is hope there. Uh, and I think that comes through in the, in the film in the form of, of the music, um, which was an essential part of the creative process. I'm like looking at these old photographs and I'm listening to Jason Martin's songs. And he's talking about geology in this like way that seems just filled with metaphor and double meanings. Um, <clears throat> and one of the things that Jason would often talk about uh, was a, a phenomenon he called print through. 
And this is something that um, audio engineers find that, that uh, on magnetic tape, as it spools around the coil, a real loud sound like a big drums, drum hit will kind of bleed through on the tape. It'll leave an echo of itself. And he learned to see that in the real world, in, in everything, in, uh, in abandoned, uh, you know, boxcars on the, on the railroad tracks, um, in echoes of old buildings and ruins. He sees that as print through. Um, and there's, there's an ability there to, to remember um, and to also sort of be present with the, uh, the changes that have occurred, right? They're, they're not complete endings because you're there to witness their, their present state as it kind of continues on, right? You can never actually step off of the timeline entirely. Um, so I, I credit whatever sort of glimmers of playful, hopeful energy that do persist in the story, I, I credit that entirely to Jason Martin. We've got a question from, from Paul in the chat. It reads, the film nicely points to the differences between how humanity used groups, culture, and stories to solve issues and have collective memory versus the new reliance on computing. What do you see as the qualitative differences, externalization, scale, decisions being made or not made? Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess when I think about myth, when I think of collective storytelling, um, one of the features of it uh, is that it's constantly mutating and changing. You know, by small degrees, it's, it's, it's adapting to its cultural platform over and over again um, and being renewed and refreshed as it does so um, in a way that's distinct from, say, a digital copy that's going to somehow remain perfectly the same. Uh, and that's, that's what we value in a digital copy. Um, but it's this drift over time that makes our stories powerful. Um, and allows them to kind of keep poking us again and again. That's what comes to mind anyway. Hold on, lost where, my, where we are in my comments, hold on. Okay, um, <laughs> I think it's a comment, but it also could maybe be a question from, from Jade. Um, and they write, the loss of the Antikythera, excuse me if I mispronounced it, mechanism is like when we call Europe in pre-mid ages, the dark ages, mm. all the art, philosophy, mathematics, architecture of Greece, Rome, Egypt is lost for Western European peoples as if it never existed. Mm. So can I jump in there about this? So I, I'm glad I'm not the only one that's obsessed with this Antikythera um, mechanism. <laughs> it's just a very cool thing. But then, like, why? Why are we obsessed with this, right? What would it have allowed you to do? It would have allowed you to calculate or to predict some planetary positions, right? Why do you actually need that? You don't. No one actually needs that. Um, it's it's a it's a kind of a almost useless calculating device, right? As as far as we can tell. Um, when Copernicus, right, is trying to, to make a living, um, he actually makes his living in, you know, 15th century uh, producing tables of planetary positions, 
right? He's a calendar maker in that sense. People aren't really interested in the calendar per se. They're interested in all that planetary information because it allows them to compute astrologies, right? So it has this sort of, um, you know, mythical religious function in Western European society. A calculating machine would not have been super useful. What was more useful would to have those experts draw up those tables because everybody could have access to those tables um, and, and use it to, to do this sort of astrological calculations on their own. It's how he literally sort of made a business until he went into academia. So it's kind of interesting, this sort of fascination with, I think we're reading into this Antikythera machine as like, oh yeah, everybody should have had this. This is an amazing machine. Whereas at the time they might've thought, well, that's kind of cool, but it's really not something that's super useful to me and definitely not something that's going to be accessible to, to even upper class um, people to have. Um, and just a note on this sort of dark ages, of course, all of that knowledge goes to the Arab world and it's brought back into Europe in the 12th century, um, you know, through the Iberian Peninsula. And mm -hmm. so it's not lost. It actually goes to the, the Arabic world and is greatly improved um, and reintroduced to Europe um, in even better fashion than it had been um, in the Greek and Roman periods. We have a question from Susan who's asking, what's an air gap? And this may have come from a previous conversation. So if Susan, you'd like to follow up on that, um, you can unmute yourself, unless Richard might know what that's. Well, Zach, Zach sent a, a Wikipedia yeah. article, which I've, which I've scanned. I, it, was, it was really just as simple as that, what's an air oh. gap? Okay. <laughs> Yeah, I think, you know, Zach's probably borrowing it from like kind of a, a idea of computer security, you know, that um, if a computer is entirely off of any network, you would say that it's been it's air gapped. Right. Um, but he's, he's using it as like a biological example for how, you know, populations can be isolated from each other and, and free, you know, protected from their particular pandemic that might be going on locally. <clears throat> Um, Molly would like to ask um, a question. So Molly, you should unmute myself. Um, I asked Todd to put me on toward the end because I wanted to circle this back around to the original title of Art's Work and a, and a very strong feeling I had of how this piece evoked almost the entire body of work of the, the earth artist Richard Smithston. Mm. And in fact, I said in my comment, except for the expanse of the landscape, we're in the expanse of zeros and ones, which you referred to earlier in describing how we were all experiencing it. And invite Rich and Michael, I mean, since Michael also first brought up the art of literature as a way of artists making sense of those ideas that science can build upon science and engineering and and for both of you to maybe take some time to to bring it back to the sort of art impulse if you will i, I had not been thinking about robert smithson but i think you're absolutely right i mean my my favorite smithson works are the ones that have gone feral um, you know, where, where geology has been kind of given back its agency. <laughs> um, the, the one on the campus of uh, Kent State, um, which was uh, 
uh, a, a building upon which dirt was poured until the main beam broke. And then that was, you know, that was either the end of the work or the beginning of the work, um, you know, and now 50 years later, 40 years later, whatever it is, it's uh, um, a small grove of trees with a kind of a, a small hill and you probably hang out back there to you know smoke weed after class or something. Um, you know, uh, it, it it continues on, <clears throat> no matter what. I don't know, Michael. Do you have a thought on the uh, on the art aspects of it? Uh, not as much. Not as much about that. Um, yeah, I mean. Yeah, to me, sort of, I, it was interesting. I like the geological angle on it, so I hadn't been thinking about um, earth art, but I was thinking more like the the genetically engineered rabbits that glowed green um, mm. and, and things like that as, as pieces of, of more typical um, bio art. Um, in the, the book that uh, Elizabeth mentioned, we actually end with Daisy Ginsburg's um, sort of exhibits on biologically created art. And we really like that because it had that that aspect of envisioning what might be possible um, in a future biological world. And but it was it was one of these worlds that literally is sort of one step away. It wasn't um, nearly as held it and not nearly as fantastical um, in that sense. And so it lacked that kind of whimsy in the way that the, the Codex did. Mm. So, um, at least somebody me, in the that was one of the important parts about the Codex was the the kind of campiness of it. Mm -hmm. And I haven't found that so much in the other kinds of artistic portrayals. Uh, somebody, while we have you on, somebody was asking about the title of that James Scott book that you referenced. Oh, Seeing Like a State. Seeing Like a State, okay. Yeah, he's a Yale anthropologist. He runs the Center for uh, Agrarian Studies. Okay, I'm gonna then, um, take one more question from Nora, and then I'm going to turn it back to Elizabeth, who has, I think, some closing remarks or, or connections. Uh, Nora, you should be able to unmute yourself. Hi. Well, it's it's less a question than uh, to contribute to this conversation about art's role. And um, so I'm an anthropologist. And one of the responses to James Scott's seeing like a state that was persuasive for me was that it was missing a particular element. You know, he does this great job of talking about standardization. But how do you actually make standardization happen in an unstandardized world, especially when we're talking about lively nature that has got a kind of trajectory of its own? And so there's this whole kind of mid-level group of people who have to imp improvise, make things up on the fly, um, and really kind of artistically act, uh, but then that gets translated as or displayed as scientific, as standardized. And so the artistic aspect becomes hidden in the standardization. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that's that's definitely a theme. But part of that goes back to like the, the myth of experimental science, like the laboratory as a controlled space. And as soon as you step out of the laboratory into the field, you know, you're hit right between the eyes with all of the contingency and unpredictability and messiness that that nature has. Um, so I think, yeah, Scott definitely is, you know, because he has that idea of, of managerial control, or at least this myth, mythological idea, and it maps neatly onto some kinds of science some of the time, but definitely not to anything that's actually out in, out in the world. 
Elizabeth, you want to make your comment or reconnect it back? I think you were talking I think, to people. I think tie this up or reconnect it back are uh, goals that are too big for me today. Um, but I mean, I can tell you that, you know, working on this exhibition and, and also being part of this conversation, which I have so enjoyed, um, I'm thinking a lot about how we work right? Just following up on Molly's comment and question, you know, um, and Rich is the only artist who was featured in both the in-person exhibition at NC State and also this entirely new digital one. And I mean, I wonder, I wonder, Rich, if, if your process has been different, you know, I mean, I appreciate it that you led off when you when you introduced the film and also in the essay that you um, wrote to accompany it, you talk about process and and the how, right? Which is which is for me a concern not only with respect to how science and technology is undertaken, but also you know how and how we orient ourselves and how we go about our days, you know, in the arts and humanities too. Um, and I'm I'm interested in your thoughts and Mike's about that very broadly. And I mean, I can I'm also asking this like very literally. I mean, Hannah and I have created this this digital project in collaboration with people who have been refreshing to collaborate with in part because of their dark vision, you know, and like I'm drawn to that. I was drawn to that pre-pandemic. I find that far more comforting than than the people who are pretending everything is normal. I don't know what to do with that, you know, and, and especially, you know, as my toddler like runs in and out of the screen and, and there is no home life differentiation or homework differentiation. So, I mean, it, I don't, I can't tie things up, but I, I would like to hear more about that aspect about how you're working and how you're thinking about work. Um. I mean, I think I started by talking about the apocalypse and I'll probably end by talking about it too. I mean, that's that's what shaped this kind of creative shift in me more than anything else. And it, I, I don't know if it was uh, um, how conscious that was. It was just, uh, I, I could no longer do the things that I used to do. Um, and it, uh, the, the ways in which I used to talk about the world just didn't seem to be uh, commensurate with what was actually going on and the kind of conversations that people really needed to have. Um, and I think for that reason, I, I found myself turning to um, to myths um, where, you know, it is a story that's its whole purpose is to talk about something that's larger than kind of one person's experience can, can wrap itself around. Um, and uh, and I'd never done that before. So it was it kind of, I was shook kind of at every level. I didn't know even where to begin. Uh, when I started the project, I didn't know I was making a film. I didn't know I was even making a story. Um, it was just kind of being revealed to me. I, feel, I felt like I was the last person to know, um, you know, when it finally came together. Um, and, and after having done that, I really don't know what's next. Like I'm, you know, hopefully next week I open the door to the Center for Post-Natural History and I feel like um, a director and a docent again, because I haven't for a year. And I hope that comes back. I hope it's like, you know, the Islanders and I remember how to swim and how to build a ship and how to get home. Um, but I don't know. 
I don't know. And I think we're all feeling that, you know, we're all trying to remember like, what's it like to hug a stranger? I, you know, I don't know. You know, what am I going to do when I get to walk into a, a room full of people I don't know? Um, who do I make eye contact with first? All that kind of stuff that used to be intuitive. Did we remember how to do it? We'll see. All right, we are just about at the top of the hour. So I just want to thank uh, immensely Rich and Mike and Elizabeth for, for joining us today and, and opening our eyes to thinking about things in different ways and, and again, bringing art into the conversation, um, which I personally think is needed even more in these times that we're living in now than ever before. So, so thank you both for your, um, your artistry and your thoughts. Um, thank you, Elizabeth, for um, continuing the arts work um, exhibit um, at Pitt, even if it's digitally, I encourage everyone to go take a look at it. Uh, the website was was designed by by Molly Renda, um, so please, or or she helped with it. Sorry, <laughs> like, um, please uh, take take the opportunity to um, to enjoy some of that and, and live in some worlds outside of our own. Um, so thank you all again for for joining us today, and we'll see you all next week. Thanks, everybody. Thank you so much. It means the world to me. Thank you.